Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick, and my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today, climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. One in three persons will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. And while deaths from cancer is going down, new diagnoses are on the rise, with 70% being environmentally caused. That means our food, our air, and the products we use on our bodies are making us sick. My next guest wrote one of the most compelling books I have read on not just how we get cancer, but what is preventing us from finding a cure and eradicating this horrific disease forever. Dr. Margaret Cuomo is the author of A World Without Cancer, and today she shares with us how we can break this chain and what we can do in our own homes to create a cancer-free world. Dr. Cuomo, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Christine. And first and foremost, Christine is a dear friend and someone I admire immensely. So we will be Christine and Margaret during this interview, please. Well, you're so kind. I want to thank you, Margaret, for writing this incredible book and for your dedication to eradicating this disease. And I also want to mention in this intro, I didn't get to say that you're a board-certified radiologist and attending physician at North Shore Hospital. Was it your work in diagnostic radiology that brought you to write this book or what really kind of brought this on? You know, it's so interesting, Christine. In every interview I've ever had, I do believe that's always the first question. <laughs> People want to know, you know, why would you, a member of the medical establishment, take issue with the way we deal with cancer in the United States, which is purported to have the best health care in the world? And I think that's a fair statement. The reason is it became very personal for me. I was practicing medicine during the time when if you didn't have cancer, you had AIDS. I mean, that was my life each and every day. If I had a patient who walked out of the office after a happy diagnosis that she was carrying her first child or second child or third child, whatever, that was a gift. Or if I could tell a person, negative, come back in a year, that's another gift. But it was a dire time. And we weren't diagnosing cancer properly. Disease was in its advanced stages often when we first diagnosed it, first discovered it. And therefore, it was just dreadful how many friends, family, patients that I lost. It was an overwhelming, critical mass. And at a point, you know, it was a tipping point, as they say. I just said to myself, we must be able to do something better here. Let's look at the big picture and really take stock of what we're doing. And that was the, the reason for the book, really. I'm so glad that you did this and that came to you because what an incredible book you wrote. I've reread it several times and I'm just so 
happy that you were able to put in this information, you as a doctor and a respected, well-known doctor, and, and put this into the book about how we're dealing with cancer and why, you know, because so many of us do think, Margaret, right? Like so much money goes to it, all these charities, you know, cancer this, cancer that. Why haven't we eradicated it? What is going on? What is the focus? And I think in your book, if you could share a little bit with us on that, you do cover it about where the money is going to. Exactly. And we don't want to vilify the charities that are trying in earnest to do good work. But in essence, think about it. There are hundreds, if not thousands of organizations, 501c3, not-for-profit organizations. They're not making a living off this per se. But think of all the administrative costs and all of the overhead that you have to pay for just to have, just to establish an organization that is trying to help prevent cancer or advocate for patients with cancer. It's just mind boggling the amount of money raised over the years and think how much more efficient we could be if we pooled our resources, if we tried to have a concerted effect. And that's one of the reasons why I use the Moonshot Project as a point of reference that when people collaborate, when people from all over the world collaborate, as they did with the scientists and mathematicians and engineers in the Moonshot Project, it wasn't just American professionals, it was was an international team. And they got it done in record time. That would simply not have happened without that degree of focus and collaboration. And that's why I state in the book that I think that model would serve us well for cancer. It has not yet been applied. And until we do that, I fear that progress is not going to be as robust as it could be. Margaret, what do you think, what in your work have you seen that is preventing us from doing that collaborative effort? What has prevented us? You know, why does every village and town, I live in a part of New York State where every village and town has its own fire department. Is that really necessary? No. And it's been proven that it's not necessary. We should be coordinating. We should be pooling funds. It's because we become very provincial. We, We have a sense of ownership. This is mine. I want to own it. I can control it. And I do think there's an element of that, even in the world, the not-for-profit world of doing good for cancer. It's just human nature, really. And it exists in government, too. There is so much diversity, so many agencies devoted to raising money for cancer, to focusing on research or treatment. Everything from the CDC to the National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health, even the Department of Defense has its own budget for breast cancer and other cancers. So it's too diversified. We should be, in my opinion, pooling those resources and having a more coordinated, collaborative approach. Wait, the Department of Defense has its own fund for breast cancer research? It has had for many years, Christine. Yes, it may even have pools of funding for other cancers as well. The Department of Defense? How does that work? Yeah, the the DOD, Department of Defense. Why (laughs) is that? I never understood it. I can't answer your question. It has to do with the the budget, the federal, the national budget. But that is a point. That is true. Yes. 
Well, I think we are coming into a time right now, as you mentioned, when you, you first started this work, it was during the time of AIDS. And I certainly remember that time as well, being in New York, it was everywhere. It's prolific. It was frightening. And I think now, right. And now here we are in the time of COVID. And I think oftentimes with great hardship also comes great innovation and a, a time where we can collaborate and we join together and we put these things aside. I hear you when you're saying about the lack of collaboration that is within nonprofits. I've seen it in environmental projects. We're focused on the me and not the we, and everyone wants to be the hero or they want the patent. (laughs) I'll throw that in there. And is that the reason? Is it come down to money? Why scientists don't, we don't have shared data on cancer. Imagine if it was all just shared data, how far we'd be along and that people could do this, but people don't, you mentioned that in your book, that the scientists have to work within their own pod, really. Exactly. And it's all about receiving recognition for your work, being able to publish, you know, the old adage, publish or perish in the world of academia. And that holds for doctors and and research scientists in our great academic institutions dedicated to cancer. If they're not constantly receiving grants and doing their work and issuing, you know, publishing in, in good journals across the country, they will not survive. And so it is a highly competitive process. That could be changed, but it would take a fundamental change. It would take overarching leadership at a federal level. And to date, and and this is not a a partisan statement, to date, it's it's both sides of the aisle, we have not had that leadership. Nobody wants to touch this. It is so deeply ingrained in our culture. So this is our fundamental dilemma, I feel. Yes, it's systemic. And I think we might be in that area where we are going to see some change with this. If I'm not being too hopeful, I do see, I think that the younger generation sees the bureaucracy, wants to change it, wants to tear it down, but it is, it's in everything. Um, One of the things that I love about your book is how you talk about that we're not addressing prevention. So we do have treatments. There's an awful lot of money thrown towards treatments. And I'm very happy for treatments. As you, you know, I've had uh, cancers affected myself, my family, many friends, and treatments are important. But when you go to the doctors, there's still not a discussion there on how you can prevent this. Why do you think that is, Margaret? Oh, it's the way doctors are trained, I feel. Our system of education in our American medical schools has always been focused on diagnosis and treatment rather than prevention. And this is opposed to the Eastern style of medicine, I have learned, where a doctor is actually considered a failure and in most cases will not be paid for her or his services if they fail to keep the patient well, because their job is to keep the patient well. If the patient develops disease, the doctor has failed. Now the doctor has to do what they can do to rectify the situation. But the goal is prevention, prevent the disease from happening. And that's not the way American doctors are taught. So it's very disconcerting to me to have received one class. I don't mean one course. I mean one four-hour 
class on nutrition in four years of medical school. Can you imagine? No. Totally inadequate. Not much has changed. There are some schools that focus on prevention and healing, but I have to say it has not been embraced, I feel, as a medical doctrine across the country. So when you walk into your doctor's office for an annual physical, you may be educating your doctor about the need to take vitamin D to boost your immunity and to help prevent cancers, which has been clinically proven. The doctor may not know. Physical activity is more widely recognized by physicians now as critical to a patient's overall health, to prevention, and even if a patient has had cancer, physical activity has been shown critical in prevent, helping to prevent recurrence, helping to help that person heal while on chemotherapy or other therapy. These are concepts that, as I say, many doctors, especially the older ones, have not been trained in, but if they're reading literature, both medical literature and popular literature, they will know that people want this information and it works. More importantly, it works. It does work. And what you mentioned is just, I see as such a terrible disservice to their patients. As you know, my mother just recently passed away from cancer in February. She had a rare blood cancer and she had had a bone marrow test four years ago because of her levels and no cancer was found, but that was, it was suspect, but that's what she ended up passing with. But during that time, I guided her on eating and being healthy, but she didn't exercise. And my husband has had cancer and I know the benefits of exercising, but sometimes it's the daughter or the, or the wife we're always pushing or, yeah. you know, but it has to come from the doctor and, but they're not telling it. And my husband yeah. doesn't exercise and I know it's better. And that's just one case. That's me personally. And here I'm someone who's very active in it, Margaret. Mm-hmm. What a disservice. And our doctor is young and, and it, it almost seems that there's a fear when it comes to cancer that people don't want to tell people something or how to be healthy or to eat healthy or I'm not sure. Yes, it it is true. I think many doctors anticipate rejection or resistance on the part of the patient. And that may happen in some cases, but it's still, I feel, the responsibility of the doctor to provide the best medical knowledge around. And the best medical knowledge we have says that physical activity definitely helps reduce inflammation. Inflammation, as you know, is critically linked to cancer, but also to heart disease, also to diabetes. You know, all important diseases have a basis in inflammation, it seems. So it's the doctor's responsibility to do that. And also, I think maybe some doctors feel, you know what, this patient has suffered enough. They don't need me telling them they have to be physically active. But the truth is, physical activity is a mood booster. It really does help even fight depression. And that's been clinically shown. Yes. So there's every good reason, every good reason to do it. Yes. And I'm constantly shocked about, as we both know, D3 is, is something that we all should be taking. And I'm constantly shocked at how much lack of information there is within the community of, of cancer survivors and people 
going through right now and going having treatment that they just didn't know to take D3. So, yeah. I, I want to mention something else, Christine, if we're not veering too much from what you want to cover. Please and do. that is that I'm a great fan of your wonderful book, Retox Your Home. I read it. I reread it. I touched on the subject of chemical enemies. Let's call them that. Everything from pesticides in the growing of our foods to health and beauty aids and all of the harmful chemicals that they contain. Many of these are the endocrine disruptors, those chemicals that actually change the operation of your thyroid and other endocrine glands. Very harmful. But you really delve into it in a very systematic and thorough way, and you give practical advice. You even have a sense of humor in your book, which I love. So, <laughs> you know, I hope that you will share with us a little bit about what brought you to finally put it all together and, and share it with us, which was an enormous gift. I love the dedication, which is written by a farmer, right? A farmer's journal. And it almost seems as if a Native American had written it because it shows the responsibility to preserve the integrity of the earth, to sustain its bounty, to sustain its fertility. And it's just a beautiful inscription. So when you all get your book, please do look at that uh, dedication. It's really worth reading, very inspiring. But I am curious to hear, you know, you've been working in your company now 24 years? 25, yeah. 25 years you founded the Good Home with all of the healthful and safe products for laundry and cleaning and even health and beauty now you have, right? You have some products also. So what was the genesis of all of that? (laughs) Of Good Home or of writing my book? Well, of both. I mean, they were closely aligned, really. They, They are. Good Home came, as, as you know, Margaret, I'm, I'm from four generations of farmers and we, working with the land has how my family has made their living and at least on my mother's side. And that made a, a huge impression on me. My summers were spent in Ohio on the farm. And, you know, if we wanted onions in our salad, I just went in the backyard and picked it. Same with sweet corn. And I learned how we are connected and we're not separate from our food source or from this earth, that we are indeed connected and somewhere along the line. And I think it had to do a little with capitalism. And I think it had what was probably a good intention of efficiency, right? To feed the many, you know, we started to industrialize everything. But with that, we lost track of, you know, there's certain times like, when the weather changes, like right now, it's funny. I was saying to my husband, can you feel fall coming? Mm-hmm. I, I feel it. We do have yeah. that. We all have that intuitively. And we've somehow shut that down and we get strawberries year round. And not that that's bad, but it, it's losing our intuition with our planet. And that connection has caused a lot of this discourse, you know, we're, yeah. yeah. And so, so that's where it came. And then, of course, when I had my own cancer diagnosis, which was six years ago, and had breast cancer, I was shocked because, you know, I went to Soul Cycle, I ate well, and, you know, I drink a green juice once a week. Like, why would I get that? And then that kind of ties me into my next question, Margaret, which is 
for you, and which we can discuss, is is the environment and. I think so many people, at least I did growing up, was like, oh, well, I don't have any cancer in my family, right? At least I didn't, and and my mom was the first. So therefore, you think you're safe. But that 10% or less, I think it's actually, it's not even 10%, it's more around eight of cancer diagnoses are hereditary, but the rest are environmental, Mm -hmm. right? They're environmental Mm -hmm. or they're reoccurrences. And you really covered this in your book and I cover it as well as the, the stuff that we're slowly exposed to, right? Yeah. The chemicals. The, right. Yeah. Well, I know you use good home and, you know, but, but what can we do? You know, I think the dry yeah. cleaning is very important, right? A lot of people don't know this, like the average things, the, the body creams we put on our body, everything, it slowly eats away at it, right? So let's start with the dry cleaning. And there is a lot you can do. That's the good news here. You know the saying, uh, buyer beware. Well, never was it more true than now. Because I'm not going to say that the food industry or the health and beauty industry are enemies, but we need to advocate for ourselves. They are not going to protect our health. We need to do that, unfortunately. So let's deal with it. Okay, so starting with. The dry cleaning, and I say that first because today is dry cleaning day here, and I don't use the dry cleaner much anymore. First of all, people aren't wearing the attire that they used to during the pandemic, right? There are fewer shirts to be ironed because my husband's not going in with a suit and tie every day, etc. So long story short, when you choose your dry cleaner, you must ask. Do you use perchloroethylene? That's a long word. If you say to the dry cleaner, do you use perk? Because that is how they refer to it in the dry cleaning industry, I learned. Perchloroethylene has been used for many years. Many dry cleaners will say to you, nothing wrong with it. I've been using it for years. I'm fine. My family's fine. Well, maybe they're lucky. Or maybe, you know, he takes precautions in some way. I don't know. But I'm telling you, it's a carcinogen. It causes cancer, and it's used in most dry cleaning processes. Now, you will see many uh, these days, especially organic cleaner or environmentally safe cleaner. And if you do your homework and you ask around in your own neighborhood, you don't have to travel far in most cases, you will find a dry cleaner who uses wet cleaning or another method without the perchloroethylene, and it does a fine job, okay? Okay. Second thing, if for some reason you're in an area or a state or whatever that just doesn't have these options available, the best you can do is when the dry cleaning is delivered, remove the plastic covering immediately and put it out in the air somewhere, in the back of your home, on a porch, on whatever it is, out in the fresh air for a number of hours. And this is supposed to have a beneficial effect in ridding you of the fumes. You don't want to be bringing those fumes in and inhaling them. Okay. So we dealt with that. Now, the greatest abundance, let's say, of chemicals that you're going to take into your body probably on a daily basis is going to come to you through your food. So if you don't have the luxury of growing your own produce, let's say, in your own backyard, and most of us don't, then you're going to seek out the organic produce. And you'll say, well, organic is more expensive. 
and I really can't afford it. I would argue that, first of all, Costco is selling organic now. Walmart is selling organic. Many of the big vendors are. It is affordable, especially if you limit what you're buying. In other words, maybe you can't buy everything organic, but maybe you'll buy those items that are listed on a list, as Christine and I know well, called the Dirty Dozen. And it comes out of a, another not-for-profit called the Environmental Working Group, EWG.org. You can look it up online. And it contains many of the vegetables and fruits that we eat commonly. Normally things like uh, with thin skins, like uh, peaches, the berries, because mm -hmm. you cannot wash a berry enough. And you can't peel a berry, really. So you're ingesting whatever is on its skin. And those little pits in a, a strawberry, that's where the pesticide sinks in. And there's no way on earth you could ever remove that. It's in the flesh of the fruit. Right. Similarly with uh, vegetables like broccoli or the, or the lettuces, etc. These are the things you want to get organic. And I tell you, they are affordable. As I say, if you do it in moderation, you say, well, this week I'm going to get these vegetables in organic produce and the next week I'll get some others. You can manage it with your budget, I do believe. The thing with your uh, meats. Now, of course, red meat should be eaten sparingly, right? Because red meat can increase your risk for cancer, for colon cancer and for other cancers. So you want to limit. And when you do buy red meat, you're going to look for the grass-fed, you're going to look for the organic. And that, again, is available. I've seen it in Costco. And maybe Walmart and other stores have it too. I don't know. But I know it's more widely available. Same thing with chicken. You see organic chickens now all over supermarkets and other stores. Fish really doesn't have a certified organic process. And so if you see organic salmon, take it with a grain of salt because there's no way, there's no uh, legal standard for this. So I'm a, if you ask the fishmonger who's selling you the fish, what does that mean, organic? Well, there are no antibiotics in the feed. And, you know, they're farmed in a responsible way. That's as good as you're going to get with that. And again, you don't want to eat the big fish on a regular basis. Why? Because they've lived longer in the ocean. They've had more time to absorb the mercury and the other pollutants in the water. And then you eat them, the fish, and then you absorb the mercury and the, the pollutants. Yeah. So smaller fish. You like salmon. Salmon is like a medium-sized fish, right? Swordfish would be considered a, a really big fish. Uh, yeah. You have to limit your quantities. So that's, that's the food category. That's a big chunk of our chemical load, wouldn't you say, Christine? I absolutely. And then, yeah. So now, now you, I'm going to hand the ball over to you for the health and beauty. That's the next thing. We all shampoo our hair. We all put body cream and we all use toothpaste and... So what are we going to do about that? Well, I wish it was easier. We share that same concern. And I think both of us also work on trying to get legislation passed, which I hope we can cover on protecting the consumer because you can, you can walk in and you don't know. And even unfortunately, now that organic and natural has become such a buzzword that anyone throws it on. Now, of course, you need to have the, for the organic seal that is regulated thankfully. But, you know, terms like vegan and, and natural, 
it's very loose. And when it comes to the body, I really subscribe to less is more. So for a moisturizer, I use good old fashioned jojoba oil or coconut oil, vegetable oils that you could even use avocado oil on your body. I think coconut is the best and really keep it simple. Now, when you're looking at ingredients on the back of your your beauty care, you should be able to understand them and it shouldn't be a, a list of chemicals. Ideally, you know, you would be getting your body care not from the drugstore because a lot of that stuff is is mass marketed and in order to be cheaper, they do have to use synthetic chemicals. But there are some good brands that you brought up to me that are online, such as Beauty Counter, right? Which I think mm-hmm, does a, yeah. a really nice job and they're very active. You want to look at, at brands that are extremely active in this area of legislation and creating safe products for people. Yeah. You want to avoid parabens. Parabens have been in, you know, they were long used as preservatives are, are a big problem. Parabens are a preservative. They've long been used, but they have shown that they are damaging our endocrine systems. No surprise. And so we completely, we haven't used them for years, but there are some people who are still using them. But Unfortunately, Margaret, I have to tell you, you know, we have to use a preservative when we're right. putting products on the shelves and there aren't really any good ones. They all have their issues. Now, if someone is dealing with a, an illness, you don't want to introduce bacteria to your system, which is why we use a preservative. But ideally, I want to use a hair mask or a facial mask. Honey happens to be a really good facial mask putting honey on your face. It's one of the best moisturizers you could use. Coconut oil on your body, avocado, even jojoba oil in your hair, coconut oil in your hair as a mask can all provide great moisturization. But in the shampoos, sometimes it can be quite rough on the hair. And there's another brand that I like called 100% Pure that makes a a beautiful shampoo that is uh, Mm. non-drying and utilizes aloe vera which is great. Yeah. There are many more companies now, wouldn't you agree, Christine, that offer not only health and beauty, but also cosmetics for women without many of the preservatives you just mentioned, the parabens, the phthalates. And I'm very encouraged to see that also at at an affordable price, because this is another thing. Most women cannot afford to pay $50 for a lipstick or, or something else, right? And health Items that really treat the whole person, a holistic approach to beauty. And as Christine just said, less is more. You only need a little bit. It goes a long way. <laughs> we do. So, we only need a little bit more. And I think, you know, the cost is is extremely important because we want our young women and some young men are buying the beauty products, the makeup products and they are the ones who are going to be most affected, right? Because this is, as you and I both know, Margaret, if this was an overnight thing, if we put on a lipstick and we suddenly had an autoimmune disorder the next day, well, we would certainly stop using that lipstick. But this is over years that we're exposing ourselves, right? Yes, over years. Over years. Well, Margaret, can you tell us, I mean, I, I want to, I know we have, we have little time left and I'd love to know that in the book, the book, after all, is entitled A World Without Cancer, and it's very, very positive. I want everyone to know that. And in it, you talk about 
that you do see a way to a cancer-free world. What needs to be done and how can we all be a part of this change? We change our foods, we change our, our cosmetics and such. What else can we do? Thank you, Christine. You mentioned it in the very beginning, and that is institutional change with leadership at the highest levels of government. It always comes to government because no one has as much money as the federal government. No one. And therefore, it would take a fundamental change to do what some of the things we mentioned earlier, a team approach, getting the academic institutions together, California to Maine, you know, working as a team have that moonshot approach. It would also mean asking not only the food industry, but the health and beauty industry, the uh, Procter & Gamble, or, you know, the big manufacturers of detergents, et cetera, cleaning products, to take stock of their products. And instead of waiting for a lawsuit to be brought against them by a group of consumers who were claiming they had cancer or some other disease due to their products, take a proactive approach, take responsibility, let them be the heroes here because they can be. We're going to make these product changes because we care about the American consumer. That's what I'd like to see in my lifetime. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That would be Um, absolutely wonderful. Yes, it would be. And certainly that's within our ability to do. That is absolutely, it's just a matter of wanting to do it. You mentioned that there are laws being passed locally in New York State. There certainly are. I know in California, there have been for many years laws protecting consumers. New York has made some great strides in the past couple of years with demanding labeling on cleaning products and health and beauty and cosmetics. Am I right? I think that was included in the last piece of legislation passed last year before the pandemic. I think so, so we're making, yes, we're making strides, but these are small steps. And in order to get that real significant transformative change, it would take change on a national level. It has nothing to do, again, with any partisan politics. Everyone cares about their own health and about the health of those that they love, at the very least. And for no other reason than that, for a very selfish reason, then we should all have an interest in doing this. So I encourage you to tell your legal representatives, you know, this is important to me. Can you try to work this out with your colleagues and see if you can get some laws passed and, and get the ball moving? Start locally and hopefully it will reach that critical point where real change will happen. I love that. And I think that. In rereading your book for the second time, I was really struck by the connection of what you just mentioned there is that it's in the hands of the people. And I think that so many people like, you know, they, oh, I have to pay my bills or I have to get to work or I have to get breakfast on the table, et cetera. I mean, there's, there's so many things. And the idea of taking a little bit out of their time to do this with no group. Like there needs to be a lobby group for the people. I think EWG tries, maybe you'd agree, but really like an easy place for people to do that. But it's not. It's just as simple as writing an email, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And over and over and over again, not just one email. You know, you have to be a true believer in this process. 
Yeah. You can't give up. You need your friends and family to join you. There's always a strength in numbers. Yep. And I encourage you. I, I really think it's worth the effort. I haven't given up yet. And I won't because I care about my children and future generations in my family. And it's really about them. So I hope that we can all join in this. That's wonderful. And and a wonderful segue to my last question, Margaret, which is I ask all of my guests their why. So being a change maker is a passion, right? We know, and it's definitely not easy as we, as we just covered, you know, there's a lot of emails. It's a marathon. It isn't a sprint. And you know, it's, it's fighting. There's a lot of disappointment. There's a, you know, two steps forward, one step back, but you, you know, you do make progress. When you get up, what makes you continue, Margaret? Is it the family, your grandchildren? What makes you continue and not want to give up? All of the above. You know, Christine, I come from a family of doers. We are not people to lie down and, and give up ever. I am a child, a grandchild of immigrants, actually, to this country from Italy. And they suffered, and they struggled, and they persevered, and they revered and cherished the United States of America. And the fact that they were able to become citizens was considered the greatest gift that they could ever imagine. And that's a precious gift to me as well. I have never lost that uh, so-called fire in the belly wanting to leave the world a better place, okay? It's trite, but in my family's case, it is true. We really have an obligation to do this, we feel, and we strive to do it. And yes, absolutely, I do it for my children. I do it for my grandchildren and their children. I feel that we have miles to go before we sleep here. We can do better. We must do better. So, This is the greatest country in the world. I I would never say otherwise, but even the greatest country can be greater. (laughs) So that's what it's all about for me. Wonderful. Well said, Margaret. I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Can you tell us, please, where everyone can purchase your book, A World Without Cancer? I will if you'll tell us where we can buy your book, Christine. Okay. (laughs) Sure. You start, please. Well, mine's on, uh, you can purchase an easy way. And I like to use small booksellers, but I will tell you that it is on Amazon. And I know that ease is important right now in times of COVID. Not everyone can leave their apartment or home. So it, my book is on Amazon. And you can also get it at my website at christinedimick.com. Excellent. And also you can get mine on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble. And Listen, if you don't want to buy a book, request it from your library and they will get it for you. I highly recommend it. If you feel safe taking a book out of the library right now, you can get it that way as well. Wonderful. Thank you for saying that. Our libraries are a resource that we cannot lose. And if you do get it on Amazon, try to get it used. That's what I try to do myself. Well, thank you, Margaret. I so appreciate you being here today and I encourage everyone to get the book, A World Without Cancer. You really, it's a wonderful read, compelling, such incredible information in there. Not only applying to cancer, but the structure of our our world today. I think it's very important. So please get it and thank you and be well. 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired. We grow with supporters and listeners like you. So please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at bethechange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.bethechange.nyc. That's bethechange.nyc. Thank you and be well.